Well, good morning again. As I said earlier, my name's Mike. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Living Water Community Church. Thank you for uh, choosing to be with us on this Resurrection uh, Sunday. Uh, if you talk to uh, anyone who uh, preaches uh, regularly before a congregation, uh, they'll tell you that uh, Easter weekend, Christmas Eve, uh, those types of things, uh, they come with some additional pressure. And uh, they probably shouldn't come with additional pressure, but they do. And I, I felt that pressure this week as I was trying to uh, pull together a riveting introduction that would just kind of absolutely captivate your attention. And uh, no matter how hard I tried, I was incapable of pulling something together. So I thought to myself, what could I share with you that would kind of get us, uh, uh, you know, moving together here? And so I thought I would share a little marital interaction that uh, Kathy and I had at a, a friend's uh, surprise birthday party, uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before last at, at Duke's Restaurant. Uh, our friend's uh, husband does an amazing job of, of blessing his wife. He's very creative. He, he ought to be a party planner. Uh, so he, he has this uh, wonderful surprise party uh, that brings like 45 of her closest friends there. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, the food w was great. Uh, the company was wonderful. But the best part of the entire time there was the dessert. Uh, it, I, I'm an ice cream fan, uh, so this dessert, it had vanilla ice cream in it, uh, had chocolate sauce over it, had some whipped cream. The entire thing was wonderful. There was only one problem. It was a little small for my liking. <laughs> so, it's a buffet. So after having one, I say to myself, self... You deserve a, a second one. And so I get up from the table and I go and I, I get a second ice cream for myself. And I, I come back to the table and Kathy gives me the Italian evil eye. <laughs> but she doesn't say anything. Uh, so uh, I took her silence as permission and after I ate the second one, I got up and I got a third one. So I come back to the table. Now I'm getting the double Italian eye. But once again, she says nothing. So I'm thinking she has no additional eyes. So I get up and have a fourth. I return to the table Kathy is just shaking her head, and she says to me, that's the third time you went for more ice cream. Does that not embarrass you? <laughs> to which I said, not at all. <laughs> I've been telling everybody I'm getting these for you. All right, full disclosure. Partially true, partially a joke. We did go to the party. We had a wonderful time. They had a delicious dessert. I did have two. I didn't have four. Uh, Kathy did not say anything to me. 
But I found this wonderful joke with that punchline on the Reader's Digest website this week. So I kind of blended the two together to give you a little levity this morning. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. First time in 22 years anyone's ever clapped for a Mike Leonzo joke. So very impressive. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I would ask your Bible app on your phone if you would make your way to Mark chapter 16. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 16 is the uh, briefest uh, account within the four Gospels of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, please feel free to get up and get one. Maybe ask your neighbor to pass one down to you. Uh, if you uh, need one, if you do use one of the Bibles that's here in the room, uh, you'll find Mark 16 on page 853. And uh, once you've located that, if you're able to uh, stand in honor of God's word, would you please do that? Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the large stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you, should see, you shall see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, I want to start off our time together this morning, and I, I want to ask you a, a rhetorical question. Uh, a rhetorical question is one that you don't need to answer out loud, and here's the question. Why are you here today? What made you get out of bed, get yourself ready? If you've got kids, get, get your kids ready. Drive here. Sing some songs together. Uh, engage uh, in, in prayer. And then now, listen to a 58-year-old, pasty white, balding Italian who was a Chris Rock wannabe telling you a joke, and then read from an ancient book that speaks about a 30-something Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the Son of God and was executed for it being raised from the dead. Well, after doing this for the last 22 years, I've got a couple thoughts. Number one, some of you, you're here out of obligation. 
uh, your wife, your husband, your kids, your mom, your dad, uh, your niece, your nephew, your grandkids, somebody, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, asked you to come, and out of courtesy to them, you came to this worship service. Now, there are others who are here because this is just what Americans do who are associated with Christianity. And it's what you do on the first Sunday that follows the first moon after the vernal equinox. That's how we determine when Easter is. So if you ever wondered why it changes, that's why it changes. Now, there are others that are here because, because you're curious. There's, the, there's this, this faith system out there that, that's existed for the last 2,000 years called Christianity. There's a guy who, whose name was Jesus who, who uh, died and rose again, and, and you want to find out, you know, what is up with some of that? And then there are others, and many of you fall into this account. You're not here because you're curious, but you're here today because you're convinced that that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but that that Jesus is actually the Son of God, and he demonstrated it by dying on a cross, being laid in a tomb, and three days being raised from the dead. And regardless of why you're here, I'm glad you're here because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either the most important historical event in all time, or it is the most elaborate hoax ever pulled off. The Apostle Paul, who God used to write the vast majority of the New Testament, was so convinced of the importance of the resurrection to the existence of Christianity, this is what he said. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. You see, without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, without Jesus dying on a cross, being laid in a tomb, and three days later, the women coming and finding the tomb empty, and Jesus appearing to his disciples and the 500 people over a period of several weeks, without that, you have no Christianity. So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to explain to you why I am absolutely convinced that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Secondly, I want to show you how the resurrection matters to some 300, 400 people sitting in a room on Oakley Avenue 
in 2023. So why do I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact? Well, in order for Jesus to be raised from the dead, he had to exist in the first place. He had to be a real human being. And while there are some who, who claim that, that Jesus never existed, that, that he was uh, nothing more than a first century le legend, I'm here to tell you that those people, that they are, are sadly completely uninformed and absolutely wrong. Now, many people who believe that Jesus is a myth do so to avoid uh, who Jesus was and, and what Jesus taught and what he did as a historical figure. Now, and some of you, you know people like this because there, there are people that are in your life who deny the truth about all kinds of different things, especially things that they have done or that they haven't done. There are people who, who lie there are people who play dumb. There are people who tend to, to bury their, their head into the sand. People who don't engage because dealing with the truth is hard. You know people like that in your life. Forget about them denying the resurrection. They just deny reality in life. They don't take responsibility for the things that they've done. Yet regardless of their denials, their lies, their ignorance, or their apathy, truth, whatever the truth is, is still truth. So how do you know if Jesus is really a historical figure? How do you, how do you know that? Well, first of all, the Bible that we have here is not simply a book of theology. It is actually a book of history. The, the things that are in here can be tested against the balance of history. And its contents, especially as to what it says about Jesus Christ, have been meticulously scrutinized by historians, both Christians and non-Christians alike, for centuries. And there is almost 100% universal agreement that Jesus is a historical figure. Second, that the Bible isn't the only ancient document that testifies to the, the, the historical person of Jesus Christ. Within a, a few decades of his life, he was mentioned by Jewish historians like Flavius Josephus and Roman historians like Tactus and Pliny the Younger that, that corroborate sections of the New Testament that, that, that detail Jesus' life and death. Even modern scholars testify to it. Listen to what Dr. Bart Ehrmans, who was a prominent New Testament scholar and who, by the way, is a vehement atheist, has to say about Jesus as a historical figure. Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher, who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem during the reign of Roman Emperor Tiberius, 
when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Now, that, that is an extraordinarily powerful testimony coming from a guy who has given his life to scholarship of history and the New Testament who doesn't believe in God. He says that Jesus was a historical figure. But he was more than just a historical figure. He was also a historical figure who was crucified by the Romans and was buried in a tomb within walking distance of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. There's another uh, renowned New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Gerd Ludman. He also is not a Christian. This is what he writes about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. This guy, not a believer, studies history, comes back and says, it is indisputable that this man named Jesus was crucified on a cross. We're also told that he was buried. We see details of the, uh, of the burial spread throughout the entirety of the New Testament. So this is what you've got so far. Jesus lived, he died, and he was put into a grave. And this leads to the obvious question of which we are here today. What happened to the body? Where did the body go? Now, Jesus gives us a hint of this. In John chapter 2, after turning the, the tables uh, of the money changers over in the temple, uh, Jesus, uh, early in his ministry, he goes in and into the temple, and there are people that are exploiting uh, those who are coming to worship in the temple. Jesus kicks over all the tables in the temple. Jesus is then asked by the religious leaders this question. What sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, where do you get off coming in here and tearing the place up? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But the Jewish leaders, the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And if you look your, make your way through, through the accounts in the New Testament, you'll see Jesus time and time again say that he is going to be raised from the dead. It, it was no secret that, that, that Jesus claimed that he was going to be raised from the dead. As such, the Jewish religious leaders of his day want to do everything in their power to make sure that there's no hoax that happens, that his disciples don't come and fabricate some kind of resurrection by stealing the body. And we see this in Matthew 27. It says, the next day, which is the Saturday morning after the Friday afternoon crucifixion, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, Pilate's the Roman guy who oversaw the execution of Jesus, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here you have Jesus' tomb. It's basically a cave in the side of a hill. They, they have rolled an enormous stone over the face of the cave, probably six feet in diameter, probably weighs multiple thousands of pounds. It's rolled downhill into a, a little, like, gully. That's, so it's easy to get downhill. All you do is knock a stone away, that's the, the wedge away, it rolls downhill. Then they take and they put a wax Roman seal over the, the connecting point where it covers the, the tomb, okay? And they guard it by a group of ruthless Roman soldiers. Now, why do you go to that extreme? Why, why do you go through all that effort? Why, I, I have buried a lot of people over the years. I, I, I've never seen, you know, the National Guard show up and stand over a grave at Paxtang Cemetery to make sure that someone doesn't go dig them up and say that they raised from the dead. So why go to these extremes? It's overkill. I mean, and Jesus' disciples, the 11 guys that are left behind, I mean, they are not, you know... Wonderful examples of courage. I mean, these guys abandoned Jesus in, in, in his hour of need. So, here they, 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 they're terrified that this body is going to be raised from the dead, that, that it's going to disappear. And at this point, the text that we read in the beginning picks up, verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, Bought, spi brought spices, or bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, this obvious question, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who's going to move this puppy? Who's going to roll this thing away? Now, I want you to notice two very important facts here. Fact number one. The women went to the tomb expecting to find what? A dead body. That's what anybody would expect, right? They're going to the tomb. They're looking for a dead body. How do we know they're looking for a dead body? Because they're going to embalm his body that couldn't get embalmed on Friday night because the sun was going down and he had to be placed in a tomb according to Jewish tradition. And we know that they're going to embalm them because they're taking embalming spices. These spices are not cheap. They cost a lot of money. These women are not rich. If they expected a risen Savior, nobody's spending the cash to buy embalming spices for a body. They're also wondering how in the world is the stone getting moved away? Even though Jesus had said time and time again that he was going to be raised from the dead, they were not expecting that. 
They thought it was, was, was probably something spiritual, not something physical. Second thing that I want you to notice is this. Who are the first women or first people to discover the empty tomb? Well, they're women. This is a crazy important point. Because in the first century, women in general were not well thought of or held in high regard. And their testimony to the facts was not held in high regard at all. I'm going to read you something from this, this Jewish historian, Josephus, which the women in this room are going to find to be extraordinarily offensive right now. So gird your loins, whatever that means. <laughs> but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. In other words, the cultural belief in the first century was you can't trust women to tell the truth. Now, I'm not saying that I believe that, all right? just want to clarify that, all right? But this is what they believed in the first century. So what does all of this mean? It means that, that if you're making something up, if you're creating a story that, that you want people to believe in the first century, you don't use first century women as your eyewitness. That, that would be like using Bernie Madoff as an eyewitness. I mean, nobody trusts that guy. You see, if the gospel writers are making up these events and they wanted people to believe them, you never put a woman in there. It makes absolutely no sense. So the women, they approach the tomb. And this is what happens. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. No doubt. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, which is about 60 miles north of where they are. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Jesus' body, it's gone. And in its place, there, there's an angel. That's the young guy dressed in a white robe. And the women are alarmed, which is a very large understatement. I mean, I get alarmed when I'm in the kitchen here by myself and someone walks in behind me, scares the pants off of me. And the angel tells them that Jesus has been raised from the dead and if they're to find his disciples and they're to go to Galilee where they'll meet him. And the women filled with fear and astonishment, they, they flee the scene and they go and only find the disciples. Now, we're going to fast forward here. Seven weeks. 
They, they've gone to Galilee, the disciples. They, 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 there's accounts of Jesus showing up and, and, and talking with the disciples and showing his pierced hands and his pierced feet. There, there's an account where, where he was, uh, spoke to, to 500 people. And you got to understand that it's in, so important. The, these eyewitnesses are important because these documents are getting distributed. The, the, the original manuscripts of the New Testament, they're getting distributed around. These letters are going around. If, if people wanted to know whether this was a lie or not, they, they've identified people in the New Testament you can actually go talk to. I mean, you've got Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, and Salome. They're real people. You can go and find these people. His body's gone. You fast forward seven weeks. Where are the disciples, the guys who have fled from Jesus during the crucifixion? They are back in Jerusalem. They're not only back in Jerusalem, they're in the temple of Jerusalem. The temple that is run by the Jewish religious leaders who are the ones that had Jesus crucified. And and what are they doing? Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the people, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, saying, you know this guy, Jesus. You saw this guy, Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive or definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You killed him by the hand. Or, uh, you, uh, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Who does who in their right mind would do that? Who would go back there? Who would risk their lives? Their leader got crucified. You're going to now go back? You're going to insult the people who did the original crucifixion? Bad things are going to happen to you. You only go back. Why? Because you believe. Because you've seen with your own eyes. If the tomb wasn't empty, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, all anyone had to do in that temple that day, you go, you go to the tomb, you roll back the stone, you pull out the body. You say, you guys are knuckleheads. I mean, it was, it's a, you can walk there. It'll take me less time to walk from here to Franco's Pizza, where I go all the time. They could have easily produced the body if there was a body. And Christianity dies in its tracks. But the newfound courage of Jesus' formerly cowardly disciples isn't the only reason to believe the tomb was empty. We also see the first century Jews making up a story about Jesus' body being stolen to deal with their dilemma. We already read this, but I want to read it again. While the women who found the empty tomb were going back to tell the other disciples, behold, some of the guards went into the city. These were the guards guarding the tomb and told the chief priests all that had happened. The guards were there. 
They were there when the stone rolled away. They were there when there was no body left. Nobody took the body. Jesus got out of Dodge on his own. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him while they were asleep. Now, this is a problem if any of you have been in the military on guard duty. Sleeping at your post is not well thought about by your superiors. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this was written back in the, the middle of uh, the first century, but this story is even... It continued through the second century. I have Jewish friends. I talked to some of my Jewish friends. They still believe this. This is taught in temples sometimes. But there's even more support for the resurrection of the Jews, or Jesus. And that's the lives and subsequent deaths of Jesus' disciples. These guys were so convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead that they devoted their balance of their life to attest to this fact. But they did something more. Every one of them suffered for what they believed. The vast majority of them, save John, were executed, crucified upside down, drawn and quartered, tied between two horses, and bodily pulled, ripped to shreds. The only one that, that got off was John, and he ends up on the island of Patmos, exiled. Why did all that happen? Because they believed it. Now, folks, there are a lot of people that believe lies. But very few people, I can't think of any, would die for a lie that they know is a lie. Who would do that? Now that brings me to the second thing that I want to show you about the resurrection of Jesus. And that's how it impacts our life. You see, when confronted with the reality of Jesus' resurrection, I think there are three primary responses. The first one is, uh, can be seen in the response of the Jewish religious leaders. We, we, we've talked about how they responded, but it, it is you know, worthy of being repeated. They did everything in their power to conceal Jesus' resurrection. They, they, they distracted, they diverted, they tried to confuse. I mean, it's all like a, you know, it's all like an estranged husband here. I mean, that, just anything they can do to divert things. And in order to do that, they come up with this ridiculous idea that the body's stolen. Now, why do they do that? They do that because Jesus, he's a threat to their power, to their control, to their pride, and their privilege. What Jesus taught about sin and repentance and forgiveness and grace and sacrifice and humility, it, it didn't fit into their worldview. It's not what they expected. And the same happens in today's society. Many people see Jesus as a threat. People want to be in control. 
They want to think it's through their power, their wisdom, their merit, that somehow they can earn their way into favor with God. They, they, they don't want to submit to Jesus and his teachings. They don't want to receive his grace and forgiveness. Why? Because they don't think they need grace and forgiveness. The second response to Jesus' resurrection was that of the Roman guards. We go back to, to verse 28. I want look in the middle of verse 28. I, I think I are down towards the bottom. Here it is. The guards, they took the money and they did as they were directed. The guards at the tomb, despite what they saw, folks, they're just going with the status quo. They don't want their boat rocked. They got their cash. They're happy as can be. If we get out of this deal, that, those angels, they didn't kill us. If we get past our commander and all this stuff and we've got cash, I'm just going with the flow. So as long as they have their money, as long as the bosses are happy, as long as no trouble comes their way, what happened or didn't happen to Jesus they don't care about. And for many people, it's no different today. Many people, they don't see Jesus as a threat. The dude is just a non-issue. He's not something I want to worry about. It's something I don't need to worry about. It's unnecessary. As long as I've got money, as long as I've got a comfortable life, as long as trouble doesn't come my way, I'm fine. Don't waste my time with this Jesus guy. I don't need it. But there is a third response, and we'll wrap up with this, which is hidden in plain sight in Mark's account that we read at the beginning of this message. Let me read it to you one more time. See if you see it. Well, you will see it because I've got it underlined. And the angel said to the women, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he was risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, those scumbags that abandoned him, and Peter, the dude who denied him, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now you've got to ask yourself the question. Why Peter specifically? Of all the disciples who failed Jesus in his time of greatest need, it was Peter. I want to talk about Peter's life for just a minute. Peter's a fisherman. He, he's a fisherman with his brother. Jesus shows up. They, they've just had a huge catch of fish, which Jesus was involved in. And Jesus tells them to Peter and Andrew, he says, I'm going to, you follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to be used by me to catch men. And what's amazing about this, the Bible tells us Peter leaves his boat behind. He leaves his business behind. I mean, many of you own businesses. 
It would be, you just leave it all behind. No, you don't worry about accounts payable, accounts receivables. You don't worry about, del- you know, bookings or billings. You don't worry about deliveries, quality control. You leave the whole thing behind. And he follows Jesus. What a great example. A little later in the Gospels, we, we find Jesus uh, asking his disciples, who do the people say that, that you are, and his disciples throw out a bunch of answers, uh, Old Testament prophets and stuff like that. And Jesus uh, and, and G- uh, Peter comes along and he says, no, you are, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, you didn't figure that out on your own. God revealed that to you. And you, Peter, upon this rock, Peter and, and rock are the same words in uh, Greek, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not withstand it. I mean, Peter is looking good. You go a little bit farther, you get to uh, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And, And Peter is with the other disciples. They've come into the upper room. There was no servant to wash anybody's feet. So none of the disciples were humble enough to, to bend down and wash their, their brother's feet. And so Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter's like, no, you're not washing my feet. You know, far be it for me to have you wash my feet. And Jesus says, what? He says, get behind me. He goes, I have no part, no part of you. If I, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part of you. And, and Peter, he tries to recover. He's like, oh, well, then wash my head and my arms and my body. And Jesus says, no, your feet need to be washed. That's it. So here Peter is. He's like, you know, I don't want you to wash my feet. A little earlier, I didn't even think about this. This one just came to my mind. Jesus talked about being... Uh, being arrested. And what did Peter say? Peter said, I'm never, ever, uh, far be it for that to, you be crucified, far be it for that to happen. And she's like, Peter, you don't get it. And finally get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Jesus is about to get arrested and then the, the Jewish leaders come, they bring the, the chief priest guards there. What Peter does, he whips out a sword, cuts the dude's ear off. She's like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> You're killing me, Peter. Don't you get any of this? And Peter had already told Jesus that he would never deny him. And he follows Jesus into the courtyard of the chief priest, and three times Peter's asked if he knows Jesus, and three times he denies Jesus. We're told the rooster crows, and Peter's devastated because Jesus said, three times you'll deny me, then the rooster will crow. I mean, if anybody failed Jesus, it was Peter. You know what you see in this account right here? You see the centerpiece of the gospel. Folks, it's called grace. That is what Christianity offers through Jesus' resurrection. It's grace. It's you and I being made right with God the Father. Not because of what we have done, 
but because what Jesus has done. And when you discount the resurrection, you discount grace. Because the resurrection is what gives us grace. And that's why we come together on the first Sunday after the first moon of the vernal equinox and celebrate what Jesus has done. Because we all need grace. And that's the beauty of what we've just done. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for your amazing son. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that he does not reward us as our sins deserve. But, Lord, that he casts our sins away as far as the east is from the west, the north is from the south. For those who confess and repent and place their faith and trust in him. Lord, I pray for those who have come here to this day, who have yet to come to faith in you. I pray that, Lord, what I might have shared would... Uh, Lord, perhaps uh, be a little pinprick that would cause them to consider the truths of your word more. Would you draw them to yourself? God, would you do in their lives what you have done in the lives of many of us? Saved us even though we are completely and utterly unworthy. Lord, help us to be a people proclaim your gospel to our friends and family. Let us do it with great humility and love. And Lord, now as we prepare to take this offering, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use these resources to the furtherance of your kingdom, that, Lord, it would not be used to, to build the kingdom of living water or the kingdom of Mike Leonzo or Ben Maxey or Mike Bongo or, or Miss Victoria, but, Lord, it would be used to build your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Lord, bless those who give online, those who give through the mail, those who will give in this place. And Lord, be with those who desire to give but find themselves not able to. Would you uh, provide for them, Heavenly Father, so that they might have the joy of giving to your good work. And it's through your Son's name we pray.